following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. All right, good morning. It's a little hard to believe we're already doing Advent and Christmas. Uh, I don't know if I'm quite ready for this, but here we go. Um, I, I will be getting to some Christmas messages uh, in a couple of weeks, but I, I'm going to uh, finish uh, Numbers in the next two weeks, this morning and, and next Sunday. And after all, Numbers is very Christmassy, right? <laughs> okay, maybe not. Especially this morning's chapter. I don't know. Uh, all right, let's, we're going to be reading... Uh, We'll look at chapters 31, 32, and 33, and as we've been doing, we're in a survey, so we're not going to read through all three chapters, but uh, let's begin by reading uh, chapter 31, verses 1 through 24. Uh, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Avenge the people of Israel on the Midianites. Afterward, you shall be gathered to your people. So Moses spoke to the people, saying, Arm men from among you for the war, that they may go against Midian to execute the Lord's vengeance on Midian. You shall send a thousand from each of the tribes of Israel to the war. So there were provided out of the thousands of Israel a thousand from each tribe, twelve thousand armed for war. And Moses sent them to the war, a thousand from each tribe, together with Phinehas, the son of Eleazar the priest, with the vessels of the sanctuary and the trumpets for the alarm in his hand. They warred against Midian, as the Lord commanded Moses, and killed every male. They killed the kings of Midian with the rest of their slain, Evi, Rechem, Zer, Hur, Reba, the five kings of Midian. They also killed Balaam, the son of Beor, with the sword. And the people of Israel took captive the women of Midian and their little ones, and they took as plunder all their cattle, their flocks, and all their goods. All their cities and the places where they lived and all their encampments they burned with fire and took all the spoil and all the plunder both a man and beast. Then they brought the captives and the plunder and the spoil to Moses and to Eleazar the priest and to the congregation of the people of Israel at the camp on the plains of Moab by the Jordan at Jericho. Moses and Eleazar the priest and all the chiefs of the congregation went to meet them outside the camp. And Moses was angry with the officers of the army, the commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds who had come from service in the war. Moses said to them, Have you let all the women live? Behold, these, on Balaam's advice, caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord in the incident of Peor. And so the plague came among the congregation of the Lord. Now therefore kill every male among the little ones, and kill every woman who has known a man by lying with him. But all the young girls who have not known a man by lying with him, keep alive for yourselves. And camp outside of the camp seven days. Whoever of you has killed any person and whoever has touched any slain, purify yourselves and your captives on the, day, uh, on the third day and on the seventh day. You shall purify every garment, every article of skin, all the works of goat's hair, and every article of wood. Uh, I think we'll stop there, actually. Um, uh, so <clears throat> I've entitled this message The Next Generation 
And as you've, if you've been following us through the book of Numbers, to get a little bit of the context here, we know that uh, the first ten chapters, the people uh, had come out of, uh, of Egypt, and in, in those first ten chapters, God orders and organizes them into a really a military camp with God at the center. Uh, and that first generation who come out from, uh, from Egypt, from slavery and from bondage, uh, we're really beginning this, this journey, not just out of Egypt, but into the promised land. And uh, God give them, give them some more instruction, regu- regulations about how they were to be as a people, a holy people who would follow God. When it came time for them to actually enter the promised land, uh, they failed. Right? That generation uh, didn't believe God could do this, that God could pull it off. And so uh, instead of entering the promised land, they, they refused and they rebelled against God. And as a result, God said that none of that generation would enter and that they would die in the wilderness. So uh, about 38 years have gone by. Um, we find them now at the, at the gateway, really, to the promised land again uh, on the plains of Moab by the, uh, the Jordan River. And the former generation has all died off, all of them, except for uh, uh, Joshua, Caleb, and, of course, Moses. And God gives Moses one last task because even Moses failed and even Moses will not enter. And so God uh, gives Moses one last task to take vengeance on the Midianites. Um, And and we see here that uh, what happens from from this point forward, the the last uh, section of the book is really focused on the new generation. The old generation is gone. How is this new generation going to handle what God's calling them to do? Are they going to step up and and exercise faith and enter the promised land? Or are they going to be like the former generation? And so these chapters are really a test and a picture of uh, what's going to happen with this new generation. Uh, They had not had great examples. They they had not had the best parents to show them what faith looked like. So how are they going to respond? Um, Well, we see that actually they are a new generation and they are a new people who have uh, much more faith than their parents. And these 38 years wandering in the wilderness and learning God's instructions with God in the center of their camp haven't been wasted on them. And uh, they, they do have faith that their parents didn't. And so the first test is this, uh, uh, this call to go avenge uh, the Midianites. Now the Midianites were involved, if you remember the story of Balaam, uh, Balak, the king of Moab, um, uh, invited Balaam to come uh, <coughs> curse Israel. And the Midianites were a part of this. Um, and we'll see a little bit later, uh, they are also involved in, in leading the Israelites into idolatry. And because of that, because they led Israel into idolatry, uh, God wants to take vengeance on them. Um, uh, vengeance is God's... Uh, Retribution or striking out against his enemies. And by leading Israel into idolatry, Midian, the Midianites had made themselves an enemy of God. And we'll talk a little bit more about the strange idea of vengeance. And uh, in our modern world, sometimes it's hard for us to imagine some of the stuff that happens in this chapter. I will, I will admit that. But I, I would ask you just to um, hang with us, right? And realize that, that these guys were not living in the year 2019. Uh, AD, maybe 2000-something BC, it was a different world back then. This was a very different world. 
And uh, this kind of violence was, was part of life. And you couldn't escape it. Uh, if you weren't an aggressor, you were being destroyed. And so, um, but beyond that, God has a purpose. And it's not that the Israelites are, are uh, executing this vengeance, but it's really a warm-up, a picture of what needs to happen next in Canaan. Because in order for the Israelites to possess or inherit the land, the promised land, uh, God says he will drive out all the nations. In fact, he demands it of them. They are to destroy and wipe out all these godless nations who are God's enemy. And he will take vengeance on all of them. But his agent, his, his tool for that is going to be the people of Israel. So he starts off by saying, okay, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna pay back the Midianites for what they did to you in leading you away from God. <coughs> Uh, and, and in causing you to sin. And in that sin, 24,000 Israelites died. So God says, I want you, Moses, to, to take vengeance. And so you're to select 1,000 from each tribe, 12,000 total. And uh, we don't know how many Midianites were. The Midianites were nomads who didn't really have fortified cities. They uh, lived actually all throughout the Sinai Peninsula region. Uh, they didn't attack all the Midianites, as we'll see. But the ones living close by... Uh, they attacked them. And it would seem that uh, 12,000 would be a fairly small army. right? So, so here's the first test of faith. God, uh, God doesn't say, take all of your army, the, the tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of, of, of able-bodied fighting men, um, just 12. Right? So this, this, this kind of ups the... Like, I would like the 600,000 better. Right? Like, if I'm going to go out as a soldier... Why not just bring everybody, right? Uh, like, that sounds good to me. 12,000 seems a bit risky. <laughs> and maybe it was. But again, God's purpose is testing their faith. Uh, and each tribe was to provide them. So uh, there's a picture here of, of the unity and solidarity of all the people. So even though only 12,000 were going out, they represented all the people. And one of the things that we've seen through the book of Numbers is the importance of Israel as a nation, when one part sins, when one part fails, the whole nation pays the consequences. And that, we'll see that why that's important in a minute. So he sends them out in this, this uh, what we would call a holy war. It's, it's, a, it's a war that they did not uh, sign up for on their own. God commissioned, God through Moses called them to this. And so they were walking in obedience to God's commands. And these are the, exactly two things that their, their former generation failed in. They didn't believe that God could do what he promised and as a result they failed to obey and follow God where, where he called them so already we're getting off to a good start they believe that uh, 12,000 men with God's help it's enough and so they obey and they go out and they uh, attack the Midianites and the battle is summarized quite succinctly basically uh, in a few verses they win amen hallelujah they win in fact they win quite uh, decisively it says all the men of the Midianites are killed. And again, not every Midianite everywhere because we find them popping up later in Joshua and even in Samuel where the Israelites are fighting the Midianites. But the, all the Midianites that lived in this region where they were on the plains of Moab uh, killed all the men. Uh, uh, they killed the five kings, including Zur. And if you remember Zur, do you guys know who Zur was? Right, the father of Cosby. Not Bill. <laughs> okay, Remember, not Bill Cosby. Uh, Cosby was the, the woman who had been brought into the Israelite camp uh, in, the, in, the, in the whole corruption, the, the deception of the Moabites. Right? Remember, the Israelite guy brought in this woman named Cosby. And 
Uh, her dad turns out to be one of the leaders or one of the kings there. Uh, also, Balaam is put to the sword. And uh, we're not... It kind of unfolds slowly what his role is, but come to find out after Balaam had so eloquently blessed Israel and didn't get paid, he decided to hang around in the area and he ended up in the camp of the Midianites and he gave them some, some interesting advice. He said, look, God's not going to curse them, but I'll show you another way. Uh, your women are very attractive. And these guys, they've been wandering out in the desert for 40 years. This is going to be easy. right? You go seduce them to have immoral relationships with you. And through that, you invite them to worship your idol gods. And um, that will bring God's judgment. And so they followed his advice. And so that's what brought on them uh, God's curse, that God uh, had to take vengeance on them. And so Balaam himself uh, is put to the sword. The cities and camps are burned. The women, uh, But the women, and here's the main point, the women and the children are captured as prisoners and they're not put to death. It seems like a merciful thing to do. It seems like somehow the right thing to do. Like why should women and children suffer uh, in, in, in a war like this, right? Especially since it's very possible that some of the soldiers knew some of these women. Right? It's like, oh, I remember you. <laughs> we had an interesting encounter one night, right? Uh, I don't know if I can kill you, right? So it gets complicated. Uh, so they come to the camp with all the spoils, uh, this massive collection of, of, of goats and sheep, 675,000 sheep. Okay, this is impressive, right? They, they made out well on this victory, right? And they were instantly catapulted into a relative state of wealth with all the treasures that they got. Uh, but Moses is not happy. He says, what have you let all the women live? What are you thinking? And it's not that you know, Moses has to sing against women. Okay, It's not that Moses um, is just bloodthirsty. right? What's the issue? He says, he says these are the ones uh, who at Balaam's advice caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord in the incident of Peor. And so the plague came among the congregation of the Lord. See, the, there was a problem in that they didn't really understand what the real danger was. Right? The soldiers went out with their swords and spears and bows and arrows and did the guy thing of doing battle. And they're picturing, you know, the greatest threat in our life are, are our enemies, are war, these warriors who could come attack us and somehow defeat us, who could harm us with their swords and their arrows. But Moses says that's actually not the most serious threat or danger of the Midianites. Right? The problem is not your enemies. The problem is people who would pretend to be your friends and who would seduce you and lead you away from God uh, not because they hate you, but because they like you and because you like them. The real source of, of danger for them were these very women right, who had, who had enticed and seduced them and led them into idolatry. Um, there's a great lesson here for us, right? Oftentimes we get so focused on the enemies who are our enemies, right? We, we, we see and perceive the great danger in our lives, uh, the demons and the, <clears throat> the, the spiritual forces that, that do spiritual warfare against us. We have picture this being uh, people trying to destroy us, people trying to um, 
unravel our lives. Maybe people with extreme political agendas. And we live in a world where these political camps keep getting farther and farther apart, right? And there's the whole us and them thing. And we see, you know, people who watch CNN as like the ultimate enemy. Those liberals, right? Sorry if you watch CNN. Um, You know, those people who aren't like us, who think differently. Uh, The LGBTQ or liberals or communists or atheists or heretics or whatever. And, and, uh, or even governments that are hostile to Christianity. And so we are on our guard against those, and we think somehow those are the enemy that's going to destroy us. And certainly we have to be careful. Certainly we, we want to be careful about what we think. Uh, but as this story would show us, uh, the people with the swords oftentimes are not the real and most dangerous threat. It's not the people with the swords, it's the people with the flowers. Right? The people who would befriend us and who would uh, appear to like us, um, and who would lead us away from God into idolatry. Uh, and of course, you know, any time we talk about idolatry, especially in a place like this where people do actually bow down to physical statues and idols, it's easy for us to think, I would never worship an idol, and I would never go into a, a temple and bow down to some statue that just seems uh, foreign and, and strange to us. And so we may think that we are exempt from the sins of idolatry, of being enticed and led away from God to love idols. But the reality is that anything that takes the place of God in our life is an idol. Anything that takes God's place in our life is an idol. So anything that we love more than God or care about or devote our time and energy to, anything we have an affection for more than God... It's an idol. Right? Uh, think about the things that you love and hold dearly. Uh, is there some danger that those things could take the place of God in your life? Anything that we trust more than God. See, one of the great lures of the idols for the, for the Israelites is they believed that these local gods had power and could do things to protect and help them, to make their, uh, their crops do better or make their cattle be more fertile and productive. And they believe that these, maybe these idols, these gods, these, these local gods, could do things that God himself couldn't, that Yahweh, their God, couldn't do. And so they would bow down in hopes that some of their power would, would be channeled toward them. Right? So they began to trust these, these small gods instead of the great almighty God who had delivered and rescued them. Um, is it easy for us to trust in things other than God? Honestly... Uh, is, it, is it easy to give up control over our life, even to God? Right? Isn't it easier just to take control and make sure I've got the reins because I feel like I can trust me better than I can trust God? I'm telling you, that ends badly. I'm just telling you, that will end badly. Right? Uh, but it's an idol. Or maybe we trust um, money or success, uh, trust other things more than God. Um, anything we worship more than God is an idol. Giving honor and praise or celebrating or exalting and lifting up anything above God is an idol. And the reality is that for all of us, these, uh, these are real threats. Right? These are real threats. And if we don't carefully examine our heart and our life, uh, we can find ourselves loving and trusting and worshiping things more than God, pursuing things more than God. And oftentimes the path in that direction is being seduced by lesser sins, right? being tempted 
not by the fear of our enemies, but by being drawn to the things that, that would, would like to befriend us. Right? The world would love to have you as a friend, but the world will lead us away from God. Um, so, so for that reason, Moses gives these, these pretty brutal instructions. He says, uh, kill the, every male among them, kill every woman who has known a man. But the girls who are, are virgins, you may spare. Um, this kind of vengeance in some ways seems to contradict the, 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 a God of love and mercy, um, killing presumably helpless women and children. Uh, we should see this, first of all, as a unique time in history when God was doing a work to clear out the land that he was going to give to the people. And he wanted it to be a holy land where they would be free from these temptations. Um, and whatever we may wrestle with the, the theology of all this, uh, the, the point is that God wanted them to deal seriously with, with the things that would be a stumbling block. Right? The real threats, the real dangers that could cause them to be led away from God and from his holiness. Uh, and in this case, it happened to be these women. Right? These women who were, had already proven to be a trap. And we know from Israel's history that this was, this was a real temptation that would go on for hundreds of years. Over and over again, they would be led to worship and bow down to false gods. Uh, and God is serious about dealing with these kinds of threats in our lives. Um, the, the, the point I think we can take away from this is that when it comes to the kinds of things in our life that are, are, are a threat to our walk with God and our holiness, we should take these things seriously. Right? Jesus said, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Right? If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. And of course, Jesus there is using uh, uh, hyperbole. He's exaggerating. He's overstating the case. Uh, thankfully, if this were true, and we held this literally, all Christians would be one-eyed, one-handed bandits, right? Because, um, uh, But the real issue is that, that, that it's not my hand that causes me to sin, is it? It's really not my eye that causes me to sin. Where, what is the cause of sin in my life? heart, right? And I only have one of those. So it, I can't just get rid of it. It needs to be replaced. Right? And that's the work of the gospel. That's the work of Jesus to give us a new heart, a new love that's, that's solely devoted to him. Okay? Uh, but Jesus, uh, his point in that passage is we've got to be serious about the things in our life that would lead us away from God. Serious. Like super serious. Like killing women and children serious, right? Uh, and yet, how often do we play and make friends with the world and think, well, I've got this under control, right? Um, it's not really going to lead me into idolatry. Uh, but God is serious about it. He says, you must eliminate from your, from your land anything that's going to be a potential temptation that would lead you away from God. Um, the rest of this chapter, which we're not going to go into great detail, but what we see in the rest of the chapter is that the, uh, this generation is serious about following God's commands. Uh, there's rules about purification. There's rules about how they divide the spoils. And um, in each of these, uh, they show a commitment to take God's word seriously. And uh, throughout the rest of this chapter, they, they demonstrate that they, 
they listened. They were paying attention when Moses was giving all these instructions for these 40 years in the wilderness. And they start practicing these things. And these will have impact as they go into the promised land, as they go to war, that they keep following these things to keep their perspective on, on their focus on God. But I want to jump ahead to chapter 32. Because uh, the next test has to do with the tribes of Reuben and, and, and Gad. Um, so let's read there uh, the first part of chapter 32. Now the people of Reuben and the people of Gad had a very great number of livestock because they just inherited like 300,000, well, altogether 600,000 sheep. Okay, all of a sudden they all became really successful cattle ranchers, right? Um, and they saw the land of Jazer and the land of Gilead, and behold, the place was a place for livestock. So the people of Gad and the people of Reuben came and said, said to Moses and Eleazar the priests and to the chiefs of the congregation, uh, Ataroth, Dibon, Jazer, Nimrah, Heshbon, Eleallah, Sabim, Sebam, Nebo, and Baon. The land that the, Lord's, the, the land that the Lord struck down before the congregation of Israel is a land for livestock. And guess what? My own addition. Your words, your, your servants have livestock. Okay? Now they're not in the promised land yet. They're still uh, at the gateway to the promised land on the eastern side of the Jordan River in these plains of Moab. But clearly they are outside the promised land. But they start looking around and they start going, hey, you know, life here would be good. Like this would be a perfect place to raise sheep and cattle. And guess what? That's what we do. Right? And they start looking around thinking, this is a perfect fit for us. Right? We don't need the promised land. right? Because it couldn't possibly get any better than this. Uh, and this highlights uh, the, the, what you could call the problem of pros- prosperity or the danger of success. Uh, the, the, the risk we face when life is too good here and now. Right? Uh, the, the church in the Western world, uh, one of its greatest problems is we live a life that is way too comfortable and way too prosperous. Right? We have been far too abundantly blessed. And what happens is we start be, to become complacent. And that's exactly what started to happen to the, the tribes of Gad of Ruman. They were looking around going, hey, it's good here. And guess what? We don't have to move. We could just stay here. We don't have to go over and fight battles and, and you know, kill people. We can just stay right here because it looks good here. And they, they, start, they were starting to become complacent. Uh, the word complacent comes from a Latin word that means very pleased or overly content. Uh, there's huge risk in being overly pleased with this life. Uh, so pleased, in fact that they were not really interested in what God was offering them. Right? They were saying, look, the promised land, that, like, that's all good for you guys, but we're good right here. Right? Um, and it is the danger and risk of, of, of a life that's too good. Right? We, we get too invested in what we have here and now, and we don't really want to move forward into what God has next. And we think this is good enough. Uh, and we start losing interest in the things of God. Right? That's why we really should all pray for more suffering in our life. Right? Amen? 
we should, right? We should, we should be careful about loving too much our life here, being too comfortable, honestly, with what we have here and now because uh, it can make us lose sight of the greater things that God has for us. Right? They had not arrived yet in the promised land. But they were convinced that God's purpose and plan could not possibly be any better than what they already have. And, and, and how true that is for, I think, Christian, Christians in the, in the wealthy Western world, where we feel like, man, it couldn't get any better. I, I'm happy. I'm content. I'm, I'm, I'm wealthy. My life is comfortable. Serving God sounds like suffering. Why would I do that? It sounds like battles. It sounds like wars. It sounds like killing people. It sounds like hard things. I think I'll just stay where I am. Right? And, and so Moses is not happy about this. Uh, second time Moses gets angry. <laughs> um, he, he says, But Moses said to the people of Gad and to the uh, people of Reuben, Shall your brothers go to war while you sit here? Why will you discourage the heart of the people of Israel from going over into the land that the Lord has given them? Your fathers did this. Okay? So here's a, here's a case where maybe the second generation is following in their father's footsteps. And Moses sees this all over again. And he's, he's seeing back to when the spies came back from the promised land with their report of how wonderful it was. And the people, uh, had uh, ten of the spies had a discouraging voice. It says, Your fathers did this when I sent them from Kadesh Barnea to see the land. For when they went up to the valley of Eshcol and saw the land, they discouraged the heart of the people of Israel from going into the land that the Lord had given them. And the Lord's anger was kindled, and on that day he swore, saying, Surely none of the men who came up out of Egypt from twenty years old and upward shall see the land that I swore to give Abraham and Isaac and to Jacob, because they have not followed me wholly. None except Caleb the son of Jephunneh the Kenazite, and Joshua the son of Nun, for they have wholly followed the Lord. And the Lord's anger was kindled against Israel, and he made them wander in the wilderness for forty years until all the generations had done evil in the sight of the Lord was gone. And behold, you have risen in your father's place, a brood of sinful men, to increase still more the fierce anger of the Lord against Israel. For if you will turn away from following him, he will again abandon them in the wilderness, and you will destroy all this people. Uh, Moses is not happy about this, and he feels like this is a discouraging voice. It is a voice that is trying to undermine faith. right? And, and faith needed to believe that, th- that this was possible, and that the promised land was better, and that they would pursue it with all of their passion. But he felt that the two tribes bailing out, saying, eh, we're good, would discourage the rest, right? And it really illustrates uh, the truth of the power of a negative voice. You know, faith is hard. And and admittedly, living out the Christian life is not always easy. And it does involve oftentimes suffering and difficulty and challenges. Uh, And if it doesn't involve those things, it at least involves the perception of those things, right? Stepping out in faith means... I have to trust God with uncertainty that it may not go easy. And so it's always hard to step out in faith. It's always hard to take that step of really putting our life fully in God's hands. Does anybody find find faith easy? (laughs) I don't find it easy. 
How much more, though, when we want to take that step of faith and we're ready to, 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 to launch out and trust God, and somebody says, you can't do that, that's impossible. <laughs> and you're like, oh, maybe they're right. Maybe they're right. And so, so Moses was very concerned that, that uh, this, this discouraging voice would spread through the camp and all Israel would say, yeah, we're all good over here. Like, this looks good for all of us. Let's just stay here. Let's not enter into the promise. And, God, and, and Moses knew what happened last time. God brought judgment on them. And so Moses is super paranoid and worried that the same thing will happen. Um, but thankfully, there's a different outcome here. And this generation, again, is different. Right? And we find that their motivation is not lack of faith or fear. And that, in fact, in the end, they are committed to their community. They're, they're committed to their brothers. Um, so it goes on. Uh, then they came near to him, verse 16, they, they came near to him and said, We will build sheepfolds here for our livestock and cities for our little ones, but we will take up arms, ready to go before the people of Israel until we have brought them to their place. And our little ones shall live in the fortified cities because of the inhabitants of the land. We will not return to our homes until each of the people of Israel has gained his inheritance. For we will not inherit with them on the other side of the Jordan and beyond, because our inheritance has come to us on this side of the Jordan to the east. So Moses said to them, If you will do this, if you will take up arms and go before uh, the Lord for war, uh, I will grant your request. So we see here that this generation is different. Um, they, um, they're not perfect, right? I think they still miss, missed out, and, and in the long run, it did not end well for uh, what's called the Transjordan tribes, the tribes on the wrong side of the river. Um, and in fact, later, in, uh, when, when God spells out the promised land, he does not include their land. Right? They're living now outside the promised land. Um, still people of covenant, uh, still united with the tribes, but... It was going to be a problem in the future. But for now, God, uh, Moses and God honor their faith and says, look, if you'll commit to fighting with your people, if you commit to the, the, the success of the whole nation, um, you can have this land. Right? We'll grant your request. And so the rest of the chapter, uh, Moses states it into a covenant agreement. Uh, and the people of Reuben and, and Gad confirmed the covenant and then it's restated again before witnesses. Um, again, a great reminder here uh, to be careful about loving the world, right? about not being too comfortable. Uh, and the temptation would, would be to say, well, if this world is bad and if it's a temptation to be too comfortable and, and to be too content and complacent, the answer would be to be a monk. Right? And that is one answer. Right? You, just, you, you just separate yourself from the world. You go up and you inflict the worst kind of suffering and isolation on yourself. Um, but, but that really was not the answer here. Rather, God, uh, God shows that they, they were successful because they embraced faith. Right? They embraced faith that encouraged others to trust God. They embraced the faith uh, that believes and is committed to serving the whole body, not just themselves. They demonstrated a faith that was willing to fight the battles only faith can win until it was done. 
right, until it was done. And even a faith that welcomed suffering. Right? They were willing to go and as tribe by tribe settled and got cities and got to stay home, they didn't. Right? They kept fighting. They kept pushing on until the land was conquered. And then they went home. Uh, last chapter. Chapter 33. And I'm not going to read all this one. Mostly because it's a list of names I can't pronounce. <laughs> Uh, which never stopped me before, but for sake of time. Um, Let me read the first four verses. These are the stages of the people of Israel when they went out of the land of Egypt by their companies under the leadership of Moses and Aaron. Moses wrote down their starting places stage by stage by command of the Lord, and these are their stages according to their starting places. They set out from Ramses in the first month on the 15th day of the month On the day after the Passover, the people of Israel went out triumphantly in the sight of all the Egyptians, while the Egyptians were burying all their firstborn, whom the Lord had struck down among them. On their gods also the Lord executed judgments. Um, And then it it lists uh, by stages 42 places, 42 starting points that takes them all the way up to where they are now, camped on the plains of Moab. Um, uh, these kind of lists, uh, when we come to them in our Bibles, we often, let's be honest, we skip over them, right? How many do that? Right? It's like, oh, it's just a list. Boom! Let's get to the back to the story, right? There's some amazing theology in this list, right? And I want to uh, actually tie it in with uh, communion. Um, and there's a couple lessons that we can learn from this list. Um, first lesson is that salvation really is a journey salvation is a journey uh, uh, the first starting point on the, on the list is significant and it has the most detail about their leaving out of Egypt out of Ram- specifically out of the city of Ramses where they were all uh, prisoners and in bondage as slaves uh, and on that day the day after the Passover the day after they had slain the Passover lamb and had sprinkled the blood on the doorposts And you remember the death angel came and killed all the firstborn of Egypt as the last and final plague. But he passed over the firstborn of Israel. And because of this devastating plague upon the Egyptians, Pharaoh finally relented and sent them away. And on that first day, on their first marching out, they were no longer slaves. God on that day decisively and definitively saved and rescued them through the blood of a Passover lamb. And they were from that day forward, onward, no longer slaves, no longer in bondage, no longer captive in Egypt. But um, there were 41 more stages, (laughs) 41 more steps. Actually, as it turns out, 40 more years of journey. And so it is with us. Uh, Jesus uh, saved us when he came into your life and through his death on the cross, when he dealt with sin in your life, and you pass out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, in that moment, you were saved. Right? And we can look back at that event just as they are here, looking back to that day when we were saved. And what I want to do, I'm gonna, uh, this is going to be a little weird and hopefully not too distracting, but what I'd like to do is ask the ushers to come and start passing out the communion elements. Uh, because... 
in communion, we, we commemorate what Jesus did on that day to, to, to save us, to rescue us. And it is a, a one-time event that is full and complete. Right? If we put our faith in Jesus, we are saved. Right? And we are no longer in bondage to sin and death. Um, but that's not the end, just like it wasn't the end for Israel. Right? It wasn't the end for them. Uh, they didn't get outside of Egypt and, and say, okay, we're, we're good, let's make this the promised land. Right? No, there was a long journey, 42 stages, 40 years. Right? Um, so it is with us. Uh, we have a, a journey of growing into God's salvation. What we see as we look through this list, uh, there's not a lot of detail, but the Israelites would have known these places. For us, some of the places we don't know about, but for them, they would have remembered specific events. They would have remembered when they were at Mount Sinai and God gave all of his laws and commands and instructions. When God showed them what it meant for him to be in the midst of their camp and to live with them what it meant for them to be a holy people. So it is for us. Uh, we don't become instantly mature and know everything that it means to walk with God. It is a journey and a lifelong process. Right? Uh, we wish it were quicker. Right? We wish that it was instant. But what we find is that just as the cross of Christ saved us, so day by day it is the cross of Christ and his blood that helps us, right? Um, God is not finished with us. Right? God has begun a good work in us, but he, is, he will complete it. Uh, it, will, it will continue on. Um, another interesting fact about this, this list um, is that it can be broken down, and, and, and uh, some scholars have identified this, that the, the list is a multiple of seven, right? Uh, seven goes into 42 how many times? Six. Okay, all you math people, you got it, right? Uh, it actually turns out to be six cycles of seven stages, right? And that's, that's important because in the Bible, seven is the number of perfection or completion, right? So, uh, and there's markers in the, in the list that kind of show these this breakdown into uh, sections of seven, 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 seven. Uh, but what's interesting is uh, for this to really work out well, it should be seven cycles of seven, right? We're one cycle short, right? Because six is not a complete, an incomplete number. In fact, if you've got six of something in, in, in the Bible language, it means you're not done yet. It's not complete. It's not perfect. It's not finished. And, and that's part of the story. They, they had come a long way. And they had seen on that journey God's amazing faithfulness step by step. Step by step. Uh, but it's not over, right? There's one more cycle of seven to go, and that is in the promised land. Um, so as, as we come to, to med meditate and to prepare ourselves for communion... Um, I want you to think about the spiritual journey that, that you have begun with Christ. Right? Uh, Jesus saved you. He, by his own blood, brought you out uh, through, through his great exodus out of bondage, not to a country or to a king, but to sin and death. Uh, 
And he's been showing his faithfulness each step of the way. Right? In this list, uh, God was faithful in providing water, in giving his commands, in providing the manna, in leading them through the Red Sea. Step by step, God had been faithful. But it's also true, as the people look through this list, they, they knew by this list many reminders of how they had failed. Uh, when we think about our journey with Christ, when we think about our journey with Christ, um, it's a journey where maybe we are more aware of our failures and our sins and our mess-ups, right? But I love that God was faithful no matter how badly they messed up, right? Uh, God brought them to the plains of Moab and he was going to bring them into the promised land uh, in spite of their sin and failure. And it's a good reminder that on our journey, as we recount the stages of our life, there are failures. Uh, and so we, we should be a people who confess our sins, right? Uh, John 1.9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So uh, as we prepare to take communion, I would like to read um, a prayer of confession together. And just, uh, you know, even this past week, this past month, like on your journey, how have we fallen short? Let's read together. Lord God, eternal and almighty Father, we acknowledge before you that we are poor sinners conceived and born in guilt and in corruption prone to do evil unable of our own power to do good because of our sin we endlessly violate your holy commandments but O oh Lord in heartfelt sorrow we repent and turn away from all our offenses we condemn ourselves and our evil ways with true sorrow, asking that your grace will relieve our distress. Have compassion on us, most gracious God, Father of mercies, for the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. And in removing our guilt, also grant us daily increase of the grace of your Holy Spirit, and produce in us the fruits of holiness and of righteousness, pleasing in your sight through Jesus Christ our Lord. I would just like to close and just have a time of reflection as the band comes up and uh, as we confess, as we remember those points in our journey where we have maybe especially failed and we, we, we remember uh, with great disappointment how we have sinned. It's also important to remember that in each of those moments, just as with Israel, in each of those moments, God met them with his grace. Through the blood of Jesus, he covered their sin and he met them and he meets us with grace. So let's just prepare our hearts and we're going to sing one song together. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.